Hi, I'm Braden Thorwaldson, and this is What? Explain. This episode is the second part of our first multi-part story, King of the Bootleggers, so you are definitely going to want to listen to part one first. We'll be here when you get back, I promise. While Rocco was in prison, the Perrys were in dire financial straits. The Canadian government began cracking down harder on bootlegging, and combined with alcohol rapidly becoming legal in more areas of Canada, many bootleggers were looking to put their money elsewhere. For Bessie, it was the burgeoning drug trade. Narcotics like heroin, opium, and cocaine were smaller and easier to smuggle than alcohol, and most importantly, offered a secondary revenue stream that wasn't as well policed at the time, and had a higher profit margin. However, the Perrys were still under observation from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police due to their bootlegging, and things remained difficult for some time. The Perrys' switch from bootlegging to narcotics also signaled a change in the power structure of the gang. Bessie started to hold more influence, as she had been the one to take over the operations while Rocco was in prison. And one main difference in between how Bessie and Rocco ran things was that Bessie was quite willing to let some of their men stay in prison, rather than spring for bail herself. Rocco almost always managed to bail out his associates that got caught in the line of duty, so to speak. And as a result, his men were devoted to him and kept their mouths shut whenever they were caught and imprisoned. However, Bessie was a good deal more reticent to pay for bail for someone who got arrested. On her watch, more associates of the Perrys ended up staying in prison, where they sometimes accepted plea deals to talk about what they knew about Perry operations. Those who did manage to pay bail often had to use their own money, which left them bankrupt and more than a little bit sore at the woman who let them sit in prison. Additionally, Rocco was known as someone who was willing to use a carrot rather than a stick when it came to dealing with officials, especially with those tasked with enforcing bootlegging laws. In fact, some police officials would have their people call Rocco to see if they could get some high-class whiskey for parties that they were throwing during Prohibition. Rocco was considered someone who minimized violence, stayed within bootlegging boundaries, and discouraged his men from carrying guns while on the job. In a way, to some of the more opportunistic politicians in power at the time, he was an asset, someone who could be worked with. The switch over to narcotics removed some of that usefulness, partially because cocaine, opium, and heroin were much more frowned upon than alcohol, but also partially because Bessie was running that side of the business, and she would happily take any opportunity to stick it to the police, even if it would do some long-term harm to the Perry organization. Once, when a police official who wanted to throw a party called the Perrys to get three cases of whiskey, Bessie answered the phone and flat out refused, stating that she can't afford to hand out whiskey to the police anymore. As you can imagine, that did not go over well with the official, and Rocco had to smooth over the situation with some discounted crates of whiskey and some honeyed words. Rocco saw value in keeping the police happy, and Bessie simply saw them as opposition that needed to be dealt with. Rocco was loved by the members of the Perry gang, and Bessie was not. The bootlegging business was also starting to become a good deal more hazardous. The U.S. Coast Guard began patrolling the waterways between Canada and the United States with more vigor, armed to the teeth. In June of 1930, it was reported that over 5,000 rounds of rifle and machine gun ammunition were fired at rum runners and the Detroit River alone in that month. The Canadian government also officially made it illegal to export liquor to countries that were under prohibition, so that loophole no longer protected any bootleggers. 
With a new danger and cost, all the smaller players in bootlegging either retired or were caught, leaving only a few big players left. Some members of the Perry organization tried suggesting to Rocco that they leave behind the narcotics trade and go back into bootlegging, utilizing their old connections now that much of their competition was wiped out. Rocco was willing, but Bessie was very much opposed. Rocco's acquiescence to his wife seemed to broadcast that the Perrys were weak and divided, and both the police and other gangs took the opportunity to do some damage. Knowing Rocco's dislike of guns, several men broke into the Perry house at gunpoint, forced Rocco and Bessie into the basement, and robbed their house of over $10,000. The police had also managed to impound a major shipment of bootleg whiskey, which Rocco himself was driving. It was only through sheer luck and a lot of goodwill with the police that Rocco managed to avoid being arrested at the time. Both the Perrys were worn out, paranoid, and seemingly at odds in terms of which way to take the organization, all of which led to two fateful days in August of 1930. On August 12th, 1930, the Perrys had a very busy day. Rocco was in court in the morning regarding the liquor charges and managed to get off without incident after his cousin, Mike Serge, pleaded guilty, stating that Rocco had no knowledge of what was in this shipment. Everyone knew this seemed highly unlikely and that he was just taking the rap for Rocco, but the court could not prove this was the case. For those thinking that this close call with the law would be the thing to put Rocco on the straight and narrow, you would be incorrect. That night, Rocco and Bessie waited at their house, expecting a drug shipment from Rochester, New York, when the three men delivering it arrived at the house. They dropped the package off and waited for payment. However, Bessie refused. The reason why is lost in time, but it could have been that she already paid for the drugs and the men didn't believe her, or that the Rochester gangsters were trying to establish new terms. But whatever the reason, Bessie refused to pay for the drugs and told the men that if they wanted payment, quote, they could go to the law. Rocco, now very worried about both his wife picking fights with American drug runners and losing a potential source of income, insisted that Bessie just paid them the money, but Bessie refused and ordered the three men from Rochester out of her house. The next day seemed to be a better one for the Perrys. Rocco visited Mike Serge in prison and determined that he would get Serge moved to a more comfortable prison location, befitting the sacrifice he made for Rocco. Afterwards, the Perrys went to the Serge's house where well, they settled in for a night of playing cards, an evening tradition for the Perrys. This went on until about 11 that night, when the Perrys decided it was time to go home. Rocco drove the car into their garage 20 minutes later, gave the keys to the house to Bessie, and told her to turn on the garage lights. As Bessie grabbed the keys and moved towards the screen door, a shotgun blast hit the wall near her head. Both Perrys screamed, and two more blasts rang out from two different guns. The first one went through Bessie's neck and jaw, entering through her right ear and exiting through her left, while the second ripped through her ribs and right lung. Bessie Perry fell backwards, dead before she hit the ground. What was Rocco doing while this was all happening? His story is varied depending on who he told it to, but one commonality was that he ran out into the alley and down the street, where he saw a man walking his dog. Rocco ran up to the man, barely able to speak, and told him about the shooting. Perry asked the man to come with him to the house, and incredibly, the man agreed to do so. 
Perry and his new companion went back into the house, where he found Bessie in a pool of blood. Over the course of the police investigation into the murder, it was brought to light that it was Bessie, not Rocco, who was the target of this crime, and the events in the garage were the end of a very premeditated plan. Shotgun cartridges found at the scene had been intentionally weakened by the point of a knife before they were fired, which had the effect of narrowing the blast area of the gun. This ensured that only Bessie would be hit by the blasts, not Rocco. The two men that killed her seemed to have been lying in wait, hiding behind the second car in the Perry's garage. Police theorized that it was Bessie's connection to bootlegging and narcotics smuggling that killed her, and all of a sudden, Bessie's death and the events surrounding it became a media circus. Over the three and a half days after Bessie was placed in a casket and brought back to the Perry household, it was estimated that over 10,000 people went through the Perry house to pay respects. That may have been true for some of the mourners, but others just wanted to see the place where the famous bootleggers and narcotic smugglers lived, or were reporters trying to get a more colorful statement from Rocco. Like it or not, the Perrys were famous, and that came with a price. When Bessie's casket was loaded into the waiting hearse, over 30,000 people lined the four-mile route to the cemetery, some of them standing three or four people deep. People trampled graves and climbed fences at the cemetery, trying to get a better view, and small grass fires popped up along the route to spectators flicking cigarettes while they waited. The actual mourners barely managed to get to Bessie's casket as it was lowered into the ground. The day after the funeral, nine detectives from the Ontario Provincial Police arrived at the Perry House to search it for any evidence as to why Bessie was killed and to question Rocco if he had any ideas. Rocco, despite barely having slept over the last few days, stuck to his statement that he only knew it was another Italian gang, and that both of them were the targets. The investigation led towards a potential motive for the murder, being Bessie denying support to the family of a former Perry associate while their patriarch was in jail, which angered many Italian members of the Perry gang who broke ties with Bessie shortly afterwards. In fact, it was Frank Ross, a former member of the Perry gang who had turned into a significant rival in the narcotics market, who ended up hiring the gunman to take out Bessie. Rocco stayed mum on this knowledge from the police, determined to settle this on his own. During the early 1930s, Canada was ravaged by the start of the Great Depression. As a result, Canadians had much less money to spend on vices such as liquor, so Rocco had to get creative. Over 1931 and 1932, Rocco became a liquor manufacturer, setting up small distilleries and secret locations throughout the Hamilton area. When the United States repealed Prohibition in 1933, there was still an issue of demand outstripping officially available supply, so Perry still had a significant market in the United States. How he managed to get his liquor to the United States was through cars with souped-up suspensions that could hold hundreds of gallons of liquor as cargo, packaged in one- and five-gallon drums. With a going rate of $25 per car let through, about $400 today, there was usually some U.S. customs agents that could be bought to wave those cars through unchecked. This went on for four years relatively uneventfully, until November 30th, 1937, when a Dodge Coupe loaded with 250 gallons of alcohol ended up crashing into an oil truck outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
highly flammable alcohol mixed with highly flammable oil, and the sparks generated from the impact were significant enough to set the whole car ablaze, killing both men inside the coupe, and causing a fire which lasted for hours, fed by the alcohol. This incident was enough to get Canadian officials wondering how exactly all this alcohol kept getting through their borders, and they opened an investigation into the Windsor Customs Examiners, which so happened to be the ones that seemed very bribable to Rocco. The world seemed to be closing in around Rocco Perry. The RCMP managed to ferret out the system of corrupt customs officials the bootleggers were using, and Perry's name was mentioned more than once as a connection. On August 30th, 1939, the RCMP issued arrest warrants for Rocco and four of his associates, along with six of the crooked customs agents and Rocco's trial was to be set for January of 1940. However, the prosecution's case relied on the testimony of three witnesses, all of whom had been part of the smuggling operation, but had agreed to testify in exchange for lighter sentences. The four months between the arrests and the trial was a long time to try and keep those witnesses hidden from some very motivated underworld figures. One of the witnesses attempted, and succeeded, in joining the Royal Canadian Air Force, which the police allowed in the hopes that it would keep him out of trouble until the trial, and just hoped he didn't get sent overseas in the meantime. After Rocco made bail, he approached another witness to talk about how to get the man out of the country. Perry even gave him some cash to, quote, make the trip more comfortable. The next day, the witness was gone, slipping through the net of officers that were watching every road, train, and bus station out of Hamilton. With two witnesses remaining, the trials began on January 15, 1940. As expected, the prosecution relied heavily on the two remaining witnesses, explaining that they were part of an alcohol smuggling ring that took place over years. Unfortunately for the prosecution, the defense shredded the main witnesses apart, exposing one of them as a forger, a welfare cheat, a gambling ring member, and as somebody who had bribed officials on his own. Given that the prosecution's case was based on the assumption that their witnesses would be seen as trustworthy, this effectively ended the trial. The jury delivered a not-guilty verdict for everyone involved, including Rocco Perry. For all intents and purposes, Rocco seemed bulletproof. The event that brought down Rocco Perry wasn't the result of any police sting operation or tax fraud or anything like that. In fact... It was the Canadian response to Italy entering the Second World War that ended his reign as King of the Bootleggers. In April of 1940, the Nazis had occupied Denmark and were about to march into France, and the Soviet Union had invaded Finland the month before. Emboldened by the Nazis' expansion, Italy's fascist dictator Benito Mussolini started threatening to launch Italy into war against France and Britain. This threat was taken very seriously in Canada as they were one of Britain's staunchest allies. Since 1936, the RCMP had been monitoring fascists in Canada, and with the start of World War II in September of 1939, they were preparing to act. They worked under a committee that had a mandate to build a list of the names of Italian-born residents of Canada that would be prime targets for arrest in the event of war with Italy. What started out as a list of Italian-born residents who belonged to fascist organizations soon morphed into including Italian community organizations and Italians, quote, who may prove dangerous or whose activities during the past would warrant internment, unquote. 
That opened the door for the RCMP to start putting Italian-born criminals, or suspected criminals, on that list. The RCMP basically ended up using that list as an excuse to incarcerate suspected gangsters that they had not been able to build a case on, and with Italy about to declare war in Europe, they had their opportunity. When Mussolini declared war on Britain and France on June 10, 1940, the federal government of Canada issued orders for internment centers to open and for the RCMP to start bringing people on that list in. Rocco Perry was grabbed off the streets that very night and was put into an internment camp near Petawawa, Ontario. He ended up being interned there for three and a half years, working in the kitchen, as well as cutting and planting trees. He was released on September 28, 1943, one of the last remaining Italians to be set free, on the condition that he stay out of Hamilton. However, the Perry Crime Organization had essentially dissolved in his absence, and he had no power, no allies, and no funds at his disposal. By using the Italian declaration of war as an excuse, the Canadian government had basically taken everything away from Rocco. Perry never regained his old power. For the purposes of government paperwork, he became a doorman and a janitor in Toronto but mostly what he did is brood on the misfortune visited upon him by the Canadian government. This lasted until April of 1944, when Rocco shook off his funk and started taking action. He returned to Hamilton and started meeting with some of his old gang members that still remained loyal to him, and made an attempt to try and get his old house and territory back. On April 23, 1944, right in the middle of these preparations, Rocco woke up, went downstairs in the house he was living in, washed down some aspirin with coffee, and went out for a walk in the rain at 11 a.m. He was never seen again. There are two theories as to what exactly happened with Rocco on that day. The first, and most plausible, was that he was murdered by rival gangsters, who were more than willing to make sure that the old gang boss didn't try and reclaim his territory. While Rocco and many of his associates were in the internment camp at Petawawa, there was a power vacuum that was quickly filled in by American gangsters, primarily located in Buffalo, New York. They used a much heavier hand than Rocco ever did, and the remaining members of Perry's gang that stayed out of the internment camps fell in line quickly. Rocco's return and determination to take back his territory would have been seen as unwanted competition, and they had a tried and true method with dealing with unwanted competition. That theory was that he went to a meeting in which he was lured into a car, taken somewhere secluded, and killed. Many of Perry's former associates believed that he was, quote, in a barrel of cement at the bottom of Hamilton Bay, and the Hamilton police heard similar stories. The second theory was that Rocco, knowing of the plans to kill him, fled to Mexico instead with the help of some of his rum-running associates, where he had been living ever since. Antonio Nicasso an Italian-born author and researcher on the Calabrian Mafia, claimed that he had seen a letter written in 1949 from Rocco addressed to Joe Serge, a cousin of his, saying that he was in excellent health. Regardless, Rocco vanished from Hamilton on that day, never to be seen again. One of the main reasons for the fascination around Rocco Perry is not just for how long he essentially ran the bootlegging industry in Hamilton and was successful in it, despite being well-known by both the police and the public, but the absolute totality in how he vanished. Documents and first-hand interviews from the time seem to confirm that he was ready to try and take back some of his territory, 
but neither hide nor hair of them was found the week after. His friends and family were convinced he was either dead or would never return, and over time, his legend faded. While it seems much more likely that he was in fact killed and never left Hamilton after that fateful day, the Mexico theory intrigues me. For Rocco to move immediately from trying to take his territory back to retreating to Mexico within the span of a week, there had to have been a tacit acknowledgement that if he stayed in Hamilton, he would die. By heading to Mexico, away from all of his friends, family, and allies, that was an admission of defeat. But he got to keep his life, albeit in exile. He would have spent the rest of his days isolated from the life he knew, in a country that he spoke little to none of the language, but he would have still been alive, and I suppose that would have had to have been enough. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who gives me a gravitas that still surprises me to this day. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at WhatExplainPod, or on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful. So if you have a friend, family member, coworker, or barista at your local coffee shop that you think may like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. Bye.